um, where we're addressing uh, the issue of homosexuality and, and gay marriage. And last week, I, I took um, the entire message and just uh, expressed the, the, the heart that Christians need to have as it, as it relates to uh, engaging people that are, that are in the homosexual lifestyle or that are struggling with same-sex attractions. And uh, one of my key points, really the, the overarching point, is that I think so uh, often the church has done an incredibly poor job of uh, talking to people about this issue and talking to people uh, with a spirit of love and mercy. Um, there's, there's just been far too often that those that name the name of Jesus have uh, expressed themselves with just a, a, a real uh, angry spirit and a hateful approach, and it's done far more damage than it's done good. And, uh, and so the, the key thing that we've got to recognize is there is a, an appropriate way that Jesus modeled for the church to address people that are uh, in sin or that are struggling with sin, and that that is how we are to address people who are struggling with sin. And, and you know, when I, when I think about, uh, you know, the groups that have stood and protested, you know, with angry signs and, and hateful things to say to to people like that are at maybe a gay pride event, my heart just breaks. And to be quite honest, I think that uh, the reality is the guy that's yelling angry things and hateful things, that guy's just as much at fault as anybody else. And, and there needs to be repentance on, on, on behalf of, of uh, the church for, for those things as well. And so I, I took a whole uh, session last week for an hour and just walked through the appropriate way that I believe that Christians are supposed to address this. And it's supposed to be with a, a spirit of love and meekness and uh, tenderness, though at the same time addressing issues with boldness and clarity and speaking truth in love. And so uh, tonight what I want to do is I want to try to at least... Uh, at a, in an introductory way, put in uh, your hands um, some some clarity on some of the common questions and common objections you'll hear about this issue of of homosexuality and, and gay marriage. The the conversation that's going on in the public right now is very confusing. And there are many voices from every different angle that, uh, that are speaking things that are leaving uh, the church, I think, a bit in a, a blurry state. And there's few voices, I think, that are speaking clarity from the Scripture. And so that's what my endeavor is. is to, my desire is to speak clarity uh, from the Scripture, honoring the Bible, I don't imagine that I'm the beacon of truth that knows everything, anything like that, but I'm doing my best to have uh, uh, my finger on the pulse of what the Scripture says about these issues and then offering them to you. And I just want to state this to begin with. Why would I address the issue of homosexuality when there are, you know, Hundreds of other sins that are prevalent in our society. Uh, and I'll give you the answer to that. The point isn't to vilify people that are in the, the gay lifestyle or to vilify homosexuals. The point is to deal with a redefinition of uh, a key institution that God has created to declare of his own nature. And that is the institution of marriage. I want to I speak directly into this conversation because the institution of marriage, it's not a man-made institution. It's designed by God to declare of himself. 
And the reason why, then, I feel that it's necessary to speak into this issue of homosexuality and gay marriage is because what's at stake is the knowledge of God. And so every day when we see a married couple, that institution of marriage has been given by God as a depiction of God's intention for his relationship with humankind. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The people of God are the bride. When we see the institution of marriage, when we see married couples, when we go to a wedding and we see the joining of a man and a woman in holy matrimony, that's not a human idea. That is a God-ordained institution to declare who he is. And so because that the definition of what that institution uh, is and what it, what it declares is up for grabs all of a sudden, I feel it's important to speak into that and bring clarity from the Scripture. This is not a light matter, and so what we're dealing with is something that ultimately at the root of it is a knowledge of God issue. And that's what's got, that's what's got me uh, attuned to it, and that's what's got me focusing on this. Now, I'm going to walk through this outline, and I'm going to touch seven common objections uh, and, and, and questions that uh, believers will tend to get over the issues of homosexuality and gay marriage. And, and, and just one other point before, before I start. I'm not giving this outline to arm you with a club to run out of here and go beat people with. That's not the point. I'm giving this uh, as a, I, I want to offer clarity to you, but I want it to be a tool in your own devotion as something that will uh, hopefully spark prayer and hopefully spark your heart to relate in kindness based in clarity. From the word. Kindness from clarity. Amen. I'm, I'm really serious about this. Uh, we have to operate in a spirit of love or don't operate at all. And so uh, I, I feel very strongly to, to emphasize that admonition. Okay, let's work through these objections and, and uh, hopefully it will help bring light to some of the questions. Okay, number one. Objection number one, Jesus did not speak out against homosexuality, so how can it be wrong? This is a common objection that you'll hear, especially from uh, gay-affirming churches. And, 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 and so the, the idea is an argument, and it's called an argument from silence. The idea that Jesus didn't say anything about it, therefore must mean that he is not uh, interested in dealing with it. And so uh, let's just walk through this. It's, it's correct that in the New Testament, we do not have a record of Jesus addressing homosexuality. But it's also true that the New Testament says that if we had a record of everything Jesus said and did, John said he supposed it would fill all the books and all the earth. So the, the point is the Gospels are not an exhaustive uh, record of everything Jesus said and did. So to pull an argument from silence and say, because it's not in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't care about it, that's a false idea. Now, furthermore, uh, I think there are uh, at least four ways, though, that they're indirect, that, that uh, Jesus did uh, address this issue. And, and, and let me just say it this way. There are many things that he didn't directly address. He didn't directly address drug abuse. He didn't directly address spousal abuse. There's all sorts of things he did not directly address. He didn't directly address gambling. There's no way that we're supposed to imagine that, that now Jesus is on board with spousal abuse because he didn't speak explicitly about it. Amen? Okay, so let's take a look now at the, at the four things that I think that, though they're, they're indirect, that I think are ways that Jesus likely did address this issue. Okay, firstly, Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi. As a Jewish rabbi, he would have embraced the standard of the Old Testament moral law. And so when you see Jesus uh, talking about the issues from the law, 
we never see Jesus taking the law, especially the moral law is my point, taking the issues of the moral law and sort of bringing the standard lower. Every time we see Jesus addressing the issues of the moral law in the Bible, what does he do with it? He takes the standard higher. For instance, in the area of adultery, when he speaks about adultery, he says, you've heard that it said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He said, but I say if a man looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart, he has already committed the act. And so he takes adultery being from uh, the, the physical idea to actually an issue of the heart. He actually takes the ethic of the moral law and increases the standard. And he does that across the board. Every time he addresses the moral standard from the Old Testament, he actually raises the standard instead of lessens it. And so because he's a first century Jewish rabbi, and because of that being his treatment of the moral law, including adultery, murder, divorce, lying, that gives us clear indication that he would have kept that same approach as it relates to the entire moral law of the Old Testament. Secondly, we get the actual prohibition uh, for adultery from a variety of Old Testament passages, which I list out there for you, as well as a specific prohibition in Leviticus 18.20. And it just simply reads this way, Leviticus 18.20 It just says, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. And so Jesus uh, obviously was against adultery. He, He actually spoke out against it clearly. Now here's the thing. Leviticus 18.20 gives us the the prohibition on adultery. It also gives us the prohibition on homosexuality. For Jesus to toe the line on adultery, he would have to play, I mean, what we would say is like hermeneutical gymnastics and just jump over the next two verses to, to, to you know, ignore the issue of homosexuality because it's right there in verse 22 in Leviticus 18 where it says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And so my point becomes this, because he held the line on adultery, we can ascertain that he held the line on homosexuality. Thirdly, when we see Jesus address marriage, when we see him address the issue of divorce, his approach is consistent, and what he does is he always affirms that from the beginning, God's intent for marriage was a man and a woman, He always affirms that it's husband and wife as long as they lived. This is the only pattern he ever affirmed. He never gave any inference that there was another pattern. He simply took what God had already put in place, affirmed it as the norm. If he were departing from that, he would have told us. It's clear as a bell that what he affirmed is the pattern that he's expecting for humankind. Fourthly, in Matthew 15, 19, Jesus condemns all forms of sexual immorality. He calls them defiling and destructive. Now, here's the thing. By making a blanket statement about sexual immorality, he's clearly addressing every form of sexual immorality that's identified in the Old Testament moral law, and he's saying there's still a prohibition on all of it. So in four ways, I see Jesus actually addressing it, though we don't have the explicit statement. All right, number two. I'm just going to move through these quickly, but I want to encourage you, go back and read through the outline and, and look at these verses and, and, and see if what I'm saying is true. Get your mind around what the Scriptures say. All right, number two. You, you'll hear this argument quite often. They'll say this, you can't use Leviticus 18 as a standard because... You don't follow the other parts of the law, like the prohibition on shellfish, or the prohibition on using two types of seed to sow in a field, or the prohibition of two types of cloth in a garment. And so because you don't follow those, clearly Leviticus 18 doesn't apply anymore. Let me just see by a show of hands, who's heard that argument or some variation of that argument? Almost everybody. It's a majority. I want to break this down for you. I give you a very simple answer on a very vast subject, but the answer is actually really simple. Now, look at A there. 
I just want to work through this. The key to the laws of the Old Testament is recognizing that every law was not actually written for every, every person on the planet. Every law was not actually written for every single person on the planet. There's a common way to look at the laws of the Old Testament. This dates back to the Reformation, and, and it breaks the laws down in three subgroups. The civil and judicial, the ceremonial, and the moral. So three different groups of, of, uh, of laws. The civil and judicial, they deal with the, the governance of the culture of Israel. The ceremonial governed the customs of Israel. And the moral governed the conduct of Israel. Something you have to take into account when you're looking at the laws of the Old Testament is this point. It, and I'll, I'll phrase it in a question. What type of government did the nation of Israel have in the Old Testament when the law was given? Don't be shy. Theocracy. Meaning, somebody say it? All right. Theocracy, meaning that God was king. God alone. And so because God alone was king, until the people demanded to have a king like other nations. I mean, because he was king, he goes ahead and gives the guideline for the governance of his nation. Because he's the king. So he gives the civil laws. He gives the ceremonial laws with the feasts. And he gives the moral laws. And these are the way that the Lord intended for Israel to govern itself. Because he was calling Israel to be a peculiar people. A people for his own possession. Why did he not want them to wear garments that had two different kinds of clothes? Because he wanted them to be set apart and different from other nations. Why? Why did he want them set apart? Because he was going to bring Messiah through their line. He wanted them to be different, obviously different. He didn't want them to eat certain foods. He didn't want them to to go about the, the manners of their society in certain ways. And he didn't want them to embrace the morality that they saw in other nations. He called them to a holy moral standard. And so what we see is that the civil and the judicial and the ceremonial laws that those had specific application to the nation of Israel during the time of their sojourn. This was how God called them to govern their society, their customs, and their culture. The moral law, on the other hand, we see actually applies in a much broader way beyond the borders of Israel. Now look at B there. The moral laws are where we get the Ten Commandments, as well as the prohibitions for adultery, incest, and homosexuality. While the ceremonial and civil laws only applied to the nation of Israel, the moral laws were universal laws that applied to all the nations. We know they applied to all the nations for a couple of reasons. Number one, God addressed other reasons, I mean other nations, and judged them because they broke His moral laws. Right there in Leviticus 18, In verse 24, here's what the Lord says. He says, do not defile yourself in any of these ways. Now again, Leviticus 18 is where we get the prohibition on adultery. We get the prohibition on incest. We get the prohibition on homosexuality and several other things. He says, do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin. So what the Lord says is, I'm actually bringing judgment on the other nations outside of Israel's border because they broke my moral laws. And so we see the application is much broader. A second thought in in regard to the moral law is this. We see the moral laws heavily echoed in the New Testament. And so applying God's own words about how he looks at the moral law in relationship to other nations and using the filter of the New Testament to see what the Lord still has instated in this hour, it's clear that the moral law is is fully applicable right now, whereas the civil 
uh, judicial and the, the ceremonial laws were specifically applicable to Israel in the time of their sojourn. Does that make sense? It's a real clarifying point if you get your mind around it. Because they'll say, you can't wear garments. I mean, you say you can't, uh, have, be a homo- you can't do homosexuality. Well, why don't you follow the, you know, you can't wear a garment with two kinds of cloth. It's a pretty simple uh, uh, answer once you actually have your mind around how you're supposed to apply those laws. Okay. Three. You hear this one often. Didn't Jesus come... To overturn the law and institute grace. And I'll just say this as an aside. I'm sure in a day ahead I'm going to have to uh, address the issue of grace. Because there is a wide spectrum uh, right now in the body of Christ talking about the issue of grace. And and, uh, there's certain sectors where uh, grace is being preached in a way that either is or leads to universalism and saying that everyone is saved as because of grace and it's also being used in a way that's affirming sin so probably in a day ahead i'm going to have to address that issue as well i just want to bring clarity just want to be true to the scripture guess what gang James said, don't let many of you desire to be teachers because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. I don't know how you feel about that, but that makes me tremble. He and I are going to stand there. Jesus is going to look at me. He's going to go, Billy, you did a lot of teaching. What did you teach? I am not going to get up there having stood on my own ideas, being moved by natural sentiments, being moved by the shifting state of society, and, the, and, and being moved by boundary lines that have been shifted and, and coming under the peer pressure of a society that's going headlong into sin. I am not going to stand before the Lord and have that in my resume. I'm going to stand before the Lord and go, I did the best I could to preach the word as true as I could see it, Lord. That's, that's where I'm going to be. You're applauding me. I'm terrified. That's fine. You can applaud that. I am absolutely serious. I am not going to stand there and the Lord look at me and go, I have to w, uh, judge you doubly because you did not stay true to the standard of my word. I will not. You can play games with that deal. I'm not. I just want to show up there and go, he goes, I like you. And I go, I like you too. And he goes, well done. That's what I'm shooting for. I'm shooting for the well done. I'm assuming for the double well done. Praise God. So, okay, that was side. Three, number three, so this issue of grace. Did Jesus come to overturn the law and institute, institute grace? Well, Jesus came to bring grace. John 1.17 says that Jesus, that uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Uh, and what Jesus did was he would commonly, especially the Sermon on the Mount, he would take passages of the Old Testament law that were being twisted by the, the, the Pharisees and the rabbis of the day that were, that were serving their own purposes. He would take those passages and reinterpret them according to the Holy Spirit. But what did Jesus come to do with the law? Did he come to throw the law out? No, he came to fulfill the law. That's a great difference. In fact, Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the living law. The Torah made flesh, Jesus Christ. He's the living law. He didn't come to get rid of the law. He was the Word made flesh. And so the the, the simple answer is this. If Jesus came to overturn the law, though he said he didn't come to overturn it but to fulfill it, but if he did come to overturn the law, then that would also mean this, that the standards of the moral law, including murder, adultery, thievery, blasphemy, and other horrific things like bestiality and incest, that they are also overturned. If homosexuality is overturned, then all those things are also overturned, and we would have to be saying that Jesus affirms all of that action. To be consistent, that's just not the case, beloved. It's just not the case. And so one of the keys is having a consistent approach and not just singling out one certain issue because there's a lot of emotion on it, because there's a lot of heat on it, and because there's a lot of sentimentality going on right now. Guys, the pressure is not getting less, it's getting more. You get that, right? And so we can't just, well, this is a hot-button issue. If we say something, we're going to really get in trouble. 
we've got to stay away from that. No, we've got to go ahead and just be bold and just, you know what I mean? Just say it like it is. Love people, love people. I mean, just love people and just be confident in what the word says and allow the chips to fall where they may. And you know what it may end up with? A bunch of arrows in your target. <laughs> it may end up with a, a, a bunch of things that, that you know, people say and do that are negative towards you. But guess what? Standing for truth is not always popular. We're not, try- we're not trying to win a popularity contest, guys. We're trying to love Jesus and love people. And be true to the word. Okay. Number four. Similar thing you'll hear. Paul said, we're not under law, but under grace. And I say, amen. Thank God we're under grace. I messed up. I need grace. Anybody agree that you need grace? I mean, I am such a mess. I've made such a... uh, uh, example of myself, of a broken human who needs the grace of God. I mean, without Jesus, I'm a druggy, alcoholic, bound to sexual immorality, totally destroying my life. Without Jesus, without grace. I am completely in need of grace. I have pro- uh, proven without a shadow of a doubt that I am a horrible God, that being, being the God of my own life only brings me destruction. That, that is not even a, a, a question. That's absolutely clear about my own life. I know this. And if you're honest, you'll say the same thing about your, maybe you're not the druggy, alcoholic, bound by sexual immorality, but maybe you, you know, you've got other issues. You do. And we all need grace. And so the point is, I celebrate the grace of God. I'm grateful for the grace of God. I'm saved by the grace of God, and I live by the grace of God. And without the grace of God, I'm an absolute wreck. And if I get in the flesh and try to live by my own ways, I'm a wreck. I always have to recline on the the empowering, enabling, uh, I mean, treasure of God's grace. So we celebrate grace, but let's get a biblical mentality on what grace actually is. Let's look at Paul's words. Romans 6.3, shall we continue in sin? that grace may abound, may it never be. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is a compelling and enabling agent to bring us out of sin. That's a good place to say amen. It is an an enabling agent bringing us out of sin. Look at what Paul said in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Well, what is the grace of God doing? It's bringing salvation to all men. It's paving the way for salvation for whosoever shall believe. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what is it telling us? It's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Grace by no means affirms sin. It calls us out of it, even encouraging us to deny our own desires that we may walk in righteousness. That's a huge point. Grace encourages us to deny our own desires at times that we would walk in righteousness. It's critical. We have some mentality that grace just sort of, you know, pats us on the back while we're in sin. We've completely misunderstood the application of the grace of God. And here's the beautiful thing about grace. Grace saves us. It enables us to live righteously. And if and when we fall, grace is there to pick us up and call us back into righteous living. Thank God for grace But let's not imagine that grace somehow is a free pass. Let's not imagine that somehow grace is some sort of rubber stamp on your sin and just lets you live any old way you want. The fact that we're under grace now means that we have the power to overcome sin. And I want to say this clearly. I fully understand this. 
that overcoming sin can be a process. Something you walk through over time. Sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just not as cookie cutter, cut and dry as we like to make it. You know, and and sometimes, you know, we get so, whatever, holy sanctified. We're just full of self-righteousness. And we have no uh, uh, um, compassion for people that are struggling. There is a truth to having a sincere heart, a sincere heart, but you're struggling with different, you know, things that are, that are weighing you down. It's grace that God calls you forth to stand and come through that. And grace enables us to walk through the process of, of beginning to live sanctified. Come on. That's critical to, to how we need to approach this issue of homosexuality, but every single issue. Uh, of sin that people are challenged with. We may fall many times, but it is by grace that we're able to repent, get back up, and press into righteous living. That's the power of grace. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. Okay, number five. Now, this is the big one. This one's got the anthem written by Lady Gaga. I was born this way. You know, if you want to grab the, the heart and the mind of a generation, it doesn't happen in the pulpits or in the classrooms. It happens through the songs. And this has become an anthem that has empowered an entire movement, and it, it, is, it has actually become the, uh, the key talking point on this issue. I was born this way. Now, I want to say this, just in addressing that objection. I never ever want to just blow that off when somebody says, well, I was born this way. How can you tell me that, that this is wrong? This is how God made it. I never want to just go, well, forget you. You're just, you know, you're just stupid or just cavalierly dismiss what they're saying. And here's why. I'm not saying that I agree that they were born that way, but what I am saying is this. You and I have no clue of the walk of the challenging things people have had to walk through. You and I do not know the story. 20 years of ministry has taught me everyone has a story. And you don't know it. And you may imagine that, you know, this person is acting a certain way because of this, this, and this. And I'll tell you what, there's a story behind every individual. This is not merely the issue of homosexuality. These are people who are dealing with real life circumstances. And so we've got to get a compassionate, tender heart for people and quit just writing people off. And so when, when I hear that, that uh, I was born this way, I don't want to just have a knee jerk and go, well, see, you're just, you know, that's just wrong. You know, just, just slam. I want to actually hear. Tell me about your story. I'm just talking about how we would interrelate now. Tell me your story. Tell me what you're going through. But here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road on this issue. Every person is created in the image and likeness of God. Every person. And, and just like every other person that's ever lived, we are deeply loved by God, and we're able to share the title of image bearers. We're image bearers. We, we, we bear the image of our creator, and because of that, we are deeply desired and loved by God. That is so powerful of a truth. Also, we all share something else in common, a broken, fallen sin nature. Every last person shares the, 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 the issue of uh, a broken, fallen sin nature. And by nature, we are destitute, and, and, and we have a, a, uh, a massive tendency to sin. We prefer sin. We prefer darkness over light. Every person since Adam has to deal with the fact that they have a sin nature that has to be addressed. So from a certain vantage point, everyone's born this way. Every person is born fallen, broken, 
in sin, destitute, in need of a Savior. Every person. Some people, their sin nature and the way that they, you know, they, their, their lives have un, un, uh, unfolded, you know, they have a greater tendency towards anger. Other people have a greater tendency towards greed. Some people are multitasking sinners. They can sin all across the board with great fluency. That's me. Amen. Some people have a tendency to sexual immorality. Some people have a tendency to this, that, the other sin. Guess what? We get that by nature. We get that by the fact of our fallen nature. And so I agree from a certain standpoint that people are born that way. Because so was I. I was born desperately in need of a Savior. I was born desperately in need of the delivering power of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is born this way. Guys, that's a critical thought. I want to just add this. With that, with that and saying that in tenderness, I want to add this. There have been many studies done. I've spent quite a bit of time in the last couple of weeks reading research and, and uh, looking at studies. There's been many studies done uh, trying to find the, the DNA link to, to homosexuality or you know, the hypothalamus or the, the link that causes certain people to be, uh, to, to be gay uh, as an inbred trait. And, and this is just the honest truth. After you look through the, the, the studies, there is not one conclusive study that identifies that there is a gay gene or an inbred trait that's peculiar to homosexuals. Even still today, uh, major gay activists say, we haven't got it yet, but we, there will be a day when we'll find the gay gene. Beloved, I just want to say this. We all have the same set of circumstances. We're broken and fallen in sin. We need deliverance. We need the blood of Jesus to set us free. Number six. This is a big one. I think this is actually a motto, one of the slogans right now that the gay activists are using. How can it be wrong if two people truly love one another Love can't be denied. I mean, when you hear that statement, it's almost like you'd have to be an idiot to say something to the contrary. Love can't be denied. Who are you to say? I mean, and and then throw that one in the face of the church. Like, is the church going to stand up and go, yeah, love is bad? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that, that feels like checkmate as soon as you hear that one. I mean, you know, and they'll, they'll just kind of say this way. Well, you know, who are you to say that if I really love this person and they happen to be the same sex as me, how are you to say that that's wrong? How can you say that? You, you, must, you must not be someone that values love. And man, you hear that argument and it just it nearly paralyzes you. Well, here's the thing. I don't have to uh, come up with a new thought as to why, quote-unquote, love should be denied because Jesus actually gave boundaries on love. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, love incarnate, actually clearly identified the boundaries of love. Look at this, Matthew 10 Verse 37, I'm on the top of of the last page here. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. According to Jesus, love can dramatically interfere with an individual's relationship with God. That's an understatement, according to Jesus. He says, you're, it's not the one that loves someone else more than me. You're not worthy of me. Two people may have deep love for one another, pledging their hearts and faithfulness, yet this in itself doesn't justify a relationship, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. It doesn't matter. Love 
is uh, given by God, and God is the one that holds the instruction sheet for love. He instructs us how to love. Love has to be on His terms. And the first rule of love is that it cannot contradict His ways. And so here's the point. Love alone is not an adequate sanctifier. I'll give you a good for instance. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So love alone is not an adequate sanctifier. Human love by itself is not our standard. I'll just add this thought. You know, some Christians would say, well, if it's not God's love, it's not real love. And I would, I would tend to agree with that. But I'm not going to look two people in the eye that have powerful affections for one another and tell them, that's not love. Because here's why. There's three Greek terms for love. You know, one is uh, uh, phileo. It's, it's brotherly love. It's, it's camaraderie and affinity. Uh, another is eros, and, and that's the, the sexual nature of love. And, and then another one is agape, and, and that's unconditional love. We would say the God kind of love. And so rather than trying to, to fight somebody down and say, it's not real love, what you got is just lust. I mean, that's just not a helpful argument, really. Just go ahead and, and you know, I, I think, just go ahead and, and agree that somebody has those powerful feelings of, of affection and attachment towards another. But let's go ahead and bring love under the heading of the one who created love himself. And let's do love according to his rules. And let's just go ahead and agree that if love interferes with us following Jesus, love is to be denied. That's tough. But it's real. Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so love is to be governed by Jesus. It's to be governed by our love for Jesus. Okay, finally, number seven. I'm just going to go ahead and land here. Why can't someone be gay and be a Christian? They might say something like this, I know Jesus loves me, so what's wrong with that? I know he loves me, this is just who I am. How can you tell me I, I, I can't be a Christian? Now, I would just say it this way, and I would differentiate. I would not just broadly sweep every person that has same-sex attraction into the same, same arena. But let's just, let's just work through the idea. Jesus' name is Yeshua. Yeshua is Yahweh saves. Jesus said himself, Matthew 1, 21, uh, I mean, of Jesus, it was said, he will save his people from their sins. So I would tell somebody, because Jesus loves you, he came to save you, and what he came to save you from was your sin. He came to save you and set you free. He didn't want to leave you in your sin. He wanted to deliver you from your sin. Whether it's hatred, greed, anger, lust, sexual immorality, it doesn't really matter. This is why Jesus died, to set people free from sin, from the bondage of sin and ultimately the penalty of sin. This is what he came for. He didn't come to leave us in our sin. He came to deliver us from it. Now, as I just mentioned, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. And so we express our love for Jesus by following his ways. We, we give our heart to him. Now, here's the thing. God never condemns people for just the, the feelings that, that, that they may have. But here's what we've got to realize. Uh, the way we feel doesn't dictate what is right and wrong. The, the, your, you know... <laughs> The impulses that enter into your heart and into your emotions. I mean, if, if the fact that you had an impulse dictated to you what should be followed, if uh, the way we felt, so to speak, was the, the, the standard that we would, you know, are supposed to live by, the, the amount of darkness that would fill the earth would be absolutely untold. I mean, inestimable. How, how dark if everybody just followed the impulses of their heart. I mean, in this room, it would be dark. Come on. Y'all don't want to amen me, but I know it's true. So our feelings are not the standard for morality. 
The impulses of our heart, our, even our desires, are not the standard for our morality. And so here's what I would tell somebody. You're not defined by, by what you feel, nor are you defined by, by what you do. Your identity is far more than sexual desires. That's one of the most odd things to me, that all of a sudden we're now using this classification to identify people by their sexual impulse. That, that's an odd thought to me. And, and so, here's the thing. People are creating the image and likeness of God. They're deeply loved by God. And it's from that identity that we find out, you know, who we're supposed to be in this life and who God's intended us to be. And, and so this is where it goes. Jesus loves us. He wants to set us free from sin. I, I look at this thing in, in two ways. I see people, and I've had so many conversations. You know, I, there's, a, there's a bit of a thought. I've, I've, you know, kind of been on my blog sharing these thoughts this week and not kind of, I, I wrote several blogs on this matter on, on my blog, billyhumphrey.com, and I've gotten a lot of feedback. But there's this idea that if I would be this bold, that I've never talked to, to people that are homosexuals or struggling with same-sex attractions. I've had, I've had countless conversations with people over these issues. Some people that are very settled in their homosexuality, some people that are struggling in their homosexuality, and, and, and a wide spectrum in between. But here's what I would say. I would differentiate. If a person says to me, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, uh, but, but I'm gay, I'm struggling with who, you know, who I'm supposed to be, I, I'm, uh, I, I've got same-sex attraction, but I want to serve Jesus, I would talk to that person about where they, how they want to live their heart, and if they would say to me, I'm pressing into righteousness, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to say no to wickedness, I'm, I'm resisting temptation, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to leave this behind, and I'm asking God for deliverance, I would absolutely say, amen, amen, yeah, you can be born again and wrestling through the issue, amen to that, but if someone would say to me, I've settled it, God made me this way, this is who I am, I will be homosexual all the days of my life, and I'm a Christian. I would just say, I'm sorry, but that's inconsistent with the Bible, it's inconsistent with Jesus and his ways, it's inconsistent with how God made you, and so it's not, you just can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's a strong word, I wouldn't sit there and rail on somebody with it, but I would have to, if I'm going to side with something, I'd have to side with the Scripture and call them out of their sin and into righteousness. The model that always comes to my mind is, G, is, is Jesus. And the picture is the woman caught in adultery. What we tend to, fare to uh, fail to realize is the woman caught in adultery, she's caught in adultery the, the, the day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the, the, the feast that depicts the marriage of the Lamb. In other words, it's the picture of God marrying His people, and on that day, she's caught in adultery. I mean, you, you, you almost can't get any more in opposition and there she is, surrounded by religious leaders, and they're ready to stone her to death. And what does Jesus do? Does he jump on the side of the guys trying to stone her to death? No. What does he do? He, he, in my mind, he does the most radical thing. He's God in the flesh. We have a woman caught in adultery, a harlot, and she's in the dirt. What's God do? He gets in the dirt with the woman caught in adultery. Now when he's down there, what does he do? He rebukes the Pharisees. And he calls her out of her sin. Go and sin no more. Beloved, this is to be the heart that the church is to carry. Willing to get in the dirt, if necessary. Willing to stand against self, self-righteous judgments. Come on. And, and getting down with people in the real reality of life, the real dirt of life, and calling them out of it into holy living, into righteousness. 
you know, the thing that I, I always think about when I, when I think about that story is this. That harlot, she's just like me. And those Pharisees, they're just like me. And I've got to, I get to decide who I am. Am I the harlot rescued by Jesus' mercy and grace? Or am I the Pharisee denying that I've ever been broken, ready to hurl stones at people who are wrestling? The word to the Pharisee is you're a harlot. The word to the harlot is Jesus can save you. This is our Jesus. So, beloved, this needs to be our approach. I think these are helpful answers. Trust me, I know when you take this stance, not everybody likes it. That's okay. I I didn't give this to you. Again, I want to just emphasize, I didn't give this to you to arm you so you can run into work, talk to your, your gay coworker, and start beating them up with my outline. That is not the point. The point is so that you can have clarity from the word that then will enable you to stand in confidence. And in the place of confidence, you can be meek and bold and loving and unshaken by a shifting tide that's in the world. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? These issues are too important to to be like a fool just rushing in and, and speaking our mind. We must pray. We must listen. We must hear the heart of God. We must care compassionately and tenderly call people to truth. Amen. Amen. Let's just stand.